0: Hey, everybody, I'm Micah Rich.
1: And I'm Olivia Kane.
0: And welcome to the Weekly Typographic,
1: a podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. All
0: right, welcome back. Welcome Hello,
1: back. Everybody. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Uh, Hello.
0: Olivia, how are you doing?
1: <laughs> I'm doing good, as I am very well caffeinated this morning, and I have a, a very exciting, um, passionate talk topic to talk about later. So it's going to be high-energy podcast today.
0: This is going to be fun. Uh, I, I love asking you as if we haven't been hanging out and chatting for the last hour.
1: Mm. Uh. <laughs> 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 it's a good addition. I, I, I think it like sets a nice tone for what we're going to be talking about.
0: Well, yeah, we found a bunch of cool links this week. You have a nerd alert that you have been researching heavily, which I think is going to yes. be really enlightening because I don't know much about your topic today.
1: It's going to be great. I'm excited. <laughs> Sorry, I'm too over caffeinated. All right, all right, Micah. First link we have in our bountiful gathering of links this week um, mm-hmm. is from AIGA. And their blog, Ion Design, and the title of it is "It's sharp, it's cool, it's both retro and futuristic." What's with all the chiseled type?
0: <laughs> what a title! You, this is like your favorite I, blog, by the way. You love this blog,
1: yeah? This I love this blog. Um, and I and love chiseled their, type. I know, so I felt like this was like a good, you know, marriage of our interests. <laughs> this is also from a new installment. Spotted, which is a part of the ION Designs column that talks about spotted trends that they're seeing that may not be really talked about that much in other media outlets, but they're seeing it and they want to talk about it. And I think that's as good a reason as any to start a new column on their blog. Lots of really cool chisel type. If you don't know what chisel type is, it can be sans serif or serif. The points and vertices are very angular in all these typefaces. And there's really quite a variety. But if you can imagine a calligraphy brush making letter forms, it's as if a chisel is making those letter forms. So it kind of is rooted in this historical look and feel. But again, they are like in vogue again right now, which is pretty interesting. And the blog outlines why that might be the case.
0: I feel like in some instances, it looks directly like some old nib pen drew it on paper. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it looks directly like someone took chisel to stone. And sometimes Mm -hmm. like the first image that you would see when you look at this, like when you click on the newsletter, it looks to me like cut out of paper.
1: Yes. Like, and if anyone's also continually trying to visualize this, most, most of the examples in here are very angular. Like imagine these letter forms don't really have many curves. Like the first typeface they show in the example is a Q without any curves. It's all made out of straight lines. And I think that's an easy way to visualize what we're talking about. Yeah. So a few interesting facts that I learned while reading this that you guys can have the pleasure of learning as well. They're kind of speculating. When I say they I mean the writer of this lovely blog post. It's written by Emily Gosling. She's speculating that this chisel type trend might be a possible reaction to minimalist sans-serif dominating the design field. So by that, I mean like Google's typography, Apple's typography, Airbnb logo, like the classic super contemporary typefaces we're seeing from like these big design heavyweights. And so she kind of has seen some media outlets transform their look. And so that's including The Guardian, which used to have an all lowercase, more or less friendly logo. And in 2018, turned to a more angular logo. And that's because they were trying to react to the challenging times. That we're living in so that might be a consequence of why we're seeing this a lot medium changed their logo in 2017 from something mm-hmm. that was also quite minimalist to this like sharp chiseled type and i think their logo is quite beautiful and so other people are saying maybe it's popular because it's actually carries a lot of personality in several resolutions on screen so even when it's type really small, it still packs the punch that when like when it's typeset in you know a larger size. So there's a few different reasons. this is definitely really fun to look at and just like the sheer variety is something I really enjoyed within this article.
0: We were talking recently you and I about how some design movements similar art movements are a reaction that is the opposite of what we've just gone through as a trend. Like, each mm-hmm. new trend is a rebellion against the previous trend. hmm And I mm-hmm. see this as very much that of, like, there was a while where everything was being rebranded with, like, generic, sans-serif, corporate-looking typefaces. hmm
1: mm-hmm. And
0: this is a peak. Like, we've been rising in the opposite of that trend of saying, okay, we're sick of all of our brands looking corporate mm-hmm. so we're going to start making them more and more full of personality in different ways and handmade in different ways and this is an interesting peak mm-hmm. in that opposition of let's let's try making stuff that looks like it was made out of paper or stone or pen yeah. you know
1: Yeah, I I'm just super into. You can just like look at these letter forms and just admire them one by one because they're all so unique and so carefully crafted. It's incredible to see them all come together into a typeface, typeface or alphabet. And it's funny because the next article that we have is historical, but it talks about a typeface that is not at all chiseled and (laughs) it is super soft and super round and described as a typeface that has had An air pump to a tire, just like blown (laughs) into it. I love that. That is such Um, a good description. And so that typeface we're talking about is Cooper Black. So we have this great video included that just came out from Vox, which is really awesome. Kind of like educational videos on pop culture. And it's all about the history of Cooper Black. If you don't know Cooper Black, think about the Tootsie Roll logo. You can think about Pet Sounds album by the Beatles. You can think about... Top Ramen, their logo. Or you can think about what I usually think about, which is the Vote for Pedro shirt from Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All of these I, are I Cooper Black examples. Video. Yep.
1: <laughs> and so what's funny is that this typeface is 100 years old. It was came into existence in 1920 by an ad man in Chicago named Oswald Cooper. And it's like, really has withstood the test of time. And it's super interesting. The type aficionados that are presenting in the video are Bethany Heck, who does the font review journal, super great at explaining the history of typefaces, um, and Stephen Heller, who's like a design legend. And so they talk about why they think this font has lived such a long life and it's still so relevant in pop culture. I was literally just designing some potential marketing collateral with Cooper Black Italic because I love it. It's one of Mm. my favorite fonts. But something that's super interesting is that Cooper Black has no straight edges. So even the bottom of their capital A is curved. And you can say that with all the places where we typically see straight edges, the stems of the H. And maybe there are places where things are straight, but it's super fluid. It doesn't stay straight for very long, even if it is. It's like really satisfying to look at. I think it can wear a lot of hats. It can be light and friendly, but it can also still command attention. They're talking about all the different ways it was used. When it was created, there was still a lot of metal and wooden type. So things were actually still quite angular just because of production methods. But soon afterwards in the mid-century, they had the existence of phototype and dry transfer, which allowed more public access to Cooper Black and using this typeface and allowed the people to to track it really really tight that was popular in like the 70s and 80s and so therefore it was able to be a part of a lot of grassroots movements as well so it was like on burger king ads but like also on revolutionary war posters you know mm. what i mean like civil oh, rights justice
0: the revolutionary war yeah or <laughs> right? posters that were revolutionary
1: exactly like, exactly. We're- <laughs> exactly thank you for clarifying yeah. <laughs> But it's a really great profile on the font and a typeface that is very much loved and has a really heavy hand in our culture.
0: Plus, I just love these Vox videos. They've done a a couple that were around typography and they've done a bunch more that are just interesting cultural topics, but they always Mm -hmm. dive deep into the history like you do with the nerd alert in a really interesting Mm -hmm. and fun and especially visual way.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely check it out. Plus, I'm it's like
0: cool. 10 minutes long. Like, it's a fun little watch.
1: Yeah, yeah. I had a great time. F- I was, always I have a good time with it. Oh,
0: wait, friends. I found that.
1: Good fun, Micah. Yeah, I didn't find that. But it's super recent. So you can share it with all your friends. And I bet they have not yet seen it. Our next link, I'm very excited to see happening. And it is Where Are the Black Designers? This is a website that's promoting a virtual conference happening on June 27th. If you look on the website, there's an array of, almost looks like album covers and artwork, but it's a collection of designers' artwork they've made for this event, and that's mostly where I'm seeing the promotion for this is on Instagram. They're they're crowdsourcing a lot of the artwork for it, and every day there are several people that make artwork for this event, and it's some interpretation of it, so I would definitely obviously check out the site and the initiative, June 27th. I will be there. But their Instagram is like so inspiring to see just a variety of takes on this topic. And the topic of where are the Black designers looks at the design industry, where 3% of the design industry is Black, and figuring out how we can change that and how we can take action and This is not a new problem. This has been ongoing for several years, but I I do think that this has gotten a lot of visibility and I'm certainly excited to see what conversations happen during it.
0: I was intrigued when you shared this with me by the variety of designs that they're using to promote it. But honestly, when I first looked at the website, I was like, I don't know what I'm looking at. And it took me a second. I had to read the about page to understand what was going on. And then mm-hmm. leave the about page and go back and realize that it was an event that is happening soon. Um, mm-hmm. But once I looked at the Instagram, I was like, oh, this this is what caught attention. I get this now.
1: Yeah. And um, that's a really clever just, way to do it. Exactly. That's one of the reasons I'm so excited about it is that like they are gathering all these designers that want to contribute And are also spreading the word and getting so much visibility. I mean, there's nearly 18,000 followers on this account. And like this initiative started fairly recently. Yeah. So lots of exciting things to look forward to. Definitely looking forward to what they talk about and how we can open this discussion and make the design industry more inclusive. Totes. Should just happen, period. And the next article we're talking about is from our lovely design favorite blog, It's Nice That. And it talks about, it has a collection of websites, all are very typographic heavy. I mean, I think that's the point of this article is to be like, are you sick of just seeing image-based websites, see how people are using type in super unique, innovative ways on the web. And there are some really funky examples of ways people are using typography. I can promise you I've never seen before in my life.
0: Yeah, I don't think I'd seen any of these examples before this article, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're really experimental. A lot of them are pages for design studios. There's one page for math practice, which is a design studio in New York. And when you move your mouse from left to right, it changes the line length of the type which is just super funky. I'm curious if there's any other application that you can use this code for, but I think a lot of this stuff is really experimental, really exciting to see, and definitely inspirational for anyone trying to like, break the bounds of, of what type is on the internet.
0: Some of this stuff, sometimes... I'm a very minimalist, functional <laughs> designer. You know this. Uh, uh-huh. And so some of the experimental stuff like this, just goes way over my head. But it's still just... I get so wrapped up in my own version of design. Mm -hmm. that it's neat to see how somebody with a totally different brain can approach it.
1: Totally. And these are really just like unfamiliar websites. The function of them is really strange to get comfortable with and like maybe not the most functional for most use cases of websites. But I think nevertheless, a great example of like how people are breaking the boundaries and how this could possibly be applied to other creative internet uses. Totes. So definitely appreciate that link and seeing all that gathered in one place. Good find, good find, good find. Good find. I think that was Hugo, right? Yeah. It wasn't me. Yeah, yeah. He- our great, our great dear friend that helps us collect our links. If you guys don't know Hugo yet. Our next article, Brand Typography, A Complete Guide, is just a pretty interesting article that has several case studies and when I say case studies I mean that term very loosely it's a few paragraphs about a certain brand that used typography that like innovated their brand look nevertheless it talks about several brands and several designers and how they use typography to really show a brand and show their personality rather than with image making and so these are examples of like Paula shares posters for Shakespeare at the Park which are quite famous they have Dalton Mogg their type design foundry over in europe talking about work they've done to you know create the spirit of vienna in a typeface which is a big feat i definitely think it's really interesting if you're you're looking into design thinking and trying to understand how these design systems come to fruition they have a lot of interviews with designers on how they went from nothing to something
0: and uh, there's a couple neat examples in here too towards the end of the article i remember They talked a little bit about how Duolingo, which is an app, if you're not familiar, to teach bite-sized languages, like learning one phrase at a time each day, that they created a typeface by drawing their logo out by hand. And then they're like, oh, we should extend this further. I wish that I knew of more articles or that we could share stuff like that specifically more often like I think that stuff is Mm -hmm. so fascinating that like Mm
1: -hmm.
0: internal work that you don't see blogged about that much
1: exactly exactly
0: we get a lot of people emailing talking about what they're interested in and what they want to hear about in the newsletter that kind of thing and a lot of people are kind of like I'm curious about making typefaces Mm. and so much of the stuff you can find on how to make typefaces is super technical And like, how do I make a font to be a type designer? Whereas snippets of articles like this, you sometimes catch those. Sometimes you just make a typeface because it's cool for a project.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. definitely think it like breaks some of the hidden barriers that exist within the branding world. Where we see the finished product, we don't necessarily know how we get there sometimes.
0: Yeah. So that was a neat find. Also from Hugo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Such a a genius, that Hugo.
1: I feel like every link we talk like we have on here, I just like want to keep on going on and on. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> and so our final link that we're sharing this week is from Alphabets, which is a women led group of letter form lovers and type designers and graphic designers. And they have a quite a large letter. We are not gonna you know, give you the verbatim, discussing what's been going on in the US and how they, as a collective, can start changing some systems that they're seeing, including more Black, Indigenous, and people of color at events, at conferences, in the communities, figuring out how to mentor people that are in marginalized groups so we can be, be a more inclusive industry. They are going to stop using the term non Latin to describe a type that isn't latin for example instead of staying non-latin you can just say arabic type or thai type so i think that is like a great way to change some vernaculars into there's no reason we shouldn't be saying arabic type rather than non-latin there's just not a good reason so it's i'm glad to see there are things that they've really considered largely and i think it's a great read for anyone interested to see how the design industry is shifting and taking action. And at the end, there's some really great resources. A lot of them are organized for Black, Indigenous, people of color. And that's opportunities to join an online series, opportunities to get scholarships. So I definitely think this article is really important to share around. And I think there's some opportunities that lay in here that should be shared and should be applied for.
0: Yeah, I just respect how thoughtful they were. They didn't put something out to put something out. They actually thought about what a, a good way to approach such a heavy and intense topic for their community. And I kind of, we, we are not super integrated with them, but we've always kind of like respected them. I know you, like you have some contacts that are involved mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. And I personally have just always respected them from afar. And uh, mm-hmm. I respect that they were really thoughtful about it.
1: Yeah, and I think we haven't included an alphabets article in a little bit, so I always happy to like give them some visibility and give them some shares as well. Um you should definitely check them out if you don't know or not Tones. familiar with them. Yeah. All right. My oh,
0: man. oh boy. I love your tone always changes. You're like it's time. Nerd it's, it's- alert.
1: It's time to get serious. I've been researching this all week, super passionately, and like literally bugging Micah every day, being like, I'm so excited to talk about Nerd Alert. This is information that is completely undershared and is like, will probably change my view of design history for the rest of my life. So
0: just, you know. All right. So give give us a good taste. What are we about to talk about?
1: So anyone listening might see the individual album artwork for this week, but some of you may not. And so what we're talking about on Nerd Alert is W.E.B. Dubois' Data Portraits. And these are, in my head, a missing link in a lot of design history that we are formally taught. I knew just probably the tip of the iceberg before going into research this week. They were occasionally brought up in my art and design history, but certainly not in much depth. And so we're going to jump right in. I'm going to tell you what they are. And then we're going to talk about like why they're so important and why I'm so astounded that these are not discussed more. So W.E.B. Du Bois, if you don't know, was a prolific author, was a civil rights activist, was the co-founder of the NAACP, and a sociologist. And we're going to be talking about his work in sociology. And so the Data Portraits were a set of around 60 data visualizations or infographics. They were displayed at the World's Fair in in Paris and they were part of an exhibit that was meant to show the uplift of black communities since slavery ended a few decades prior. And so you can already tell like these are pretty unprecedented visualizations and I will give you some context about what the world was looking like at the time. And every time I give you a new fact, you're like, mine's going to be like just a little bit more blown. I promise you. <laughs> so I'm also trying to be as succinct as possible to give you guys an overview. There is so many articles online. There's a podcast from the Policy Viz that I listen to. That's about, that podcast is about infographics. They got the editors of the book to talk about it. Silas Monroe is the designer, but also a contributor to the book. And he has a really great talk that he gave at Typographics and at Left Archive about his work with the book. I looked into that. There's a book on these that I also bought that gave me the whole collection of these data portraits. So there's lots of really great resources. I'm just going to be hitting a few notes on it, but this stuff is fascinating. Okay, so... These infographics were shown at a world's fair, so we know that they're being seen by Europeans and like a larger audience. And what these infographics looked like, they were brightly colored. They looked almost mechanic, but they were hand done, and they looked very modern, even though at the time it was 1900. So the what was in vogue at the time was Art Nouveau, and you can already see that these brightly colored straightforward lots of hard solid lines in these infographics is like visually the first of its kind and they're accredited to be one of the first visually aesthetically pleasing infographics to be seen and this was 1900 so there was work at in infographics before Du Bois came out with these data portraits and it was by William Playfair who created the pie chart and the Bar chart and the line graph, and Florence Nightingale, who was using infographics at the time to help get healthcare more funded in England. I looked up these examples. They're both. They both remind me of just like really, really old maps from like the 1600s. Lots of muted colors. Lots of like engraving. They're not. They don't have that handcrafted look. They're certainly not using bright colors the way that Du Bois' data portraits did. And these data portraits were collected using existing data by students and alumni at Atlanta University and it was done in a couple months so it really wasn't a long time and these students were students of social science they weren't designers which I find even like more fascinating Mm. that they were able to come up with these incredibly creative depictions of what black life was at the time but without having that formal design training And so we're going to talk about what the visualizations were showing and how that was so seminal. So it was one of the first cross-fertilizations of visual art and social science, which is huge for the subject. And this blew my mind, but at the time, in 1900, social science was largely based off of social Darwinism, which is like also this crazy racist and classist way of thinking that the Europeans were superiority. And it, it also stems from white supremacy, ultimately. Right. And so they, obviously Europeans and white people at the time, thought that they were smarter, they were more hardworking, they had all these qualities that made them superior. But they, these data portraits were actually refuting those stereotypes. And they were so important at giving for the first time statistical science that proved social Darwinism wrong, and mm-hmm. said, no, this is the black population in America, and we have we have made so much progress since the end of slavery, which was going on for centuries, and we've only had a few decades, and this is how far we've come. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were showing literacy rates, and they were showing black people owning property in 1900, and how far that's come in the past few decades, and showing that they were not inferior, that, their race was just as capable as being a nation within a nation as the white race. And so that was like really seminal and really just like a first of its kind. And this was the first time that this sort of academic data was given to a a wide audience, was shared. And so I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but I think a lot with what's going on in America, we're seeing a lot of people trying to educate the broad audience with infographics and with statistics and with hard numbers about what it's like and race relations in America. And I think we're seeing that now more than I ever have in my life.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but W.E.B. Du Bois and his students were able to visualize this in 1900, and these were the first visualizations of institutionalized racism. So while this was, these visualizations were showing um, progress the Black community has made, it was also a mixed portrait because at the same time, It was a very stark scientific portrait of Black America. So ultimately, it was also a critique of America and how institutionalized racism was marginalizing people. And so it's this push and pull. Well, yes, like the Black community made so much progress in several decades, but they were also fighting against Jim Crow. They were fighting against discrimination. The odds were not in their favor. I mean, it shows the resilience, but it also shows just how truthfully uncivilized America was because they were marginalizing these groups and now there was data to show that. And so that was just like the first time that we were shown data on jobs, on affluence, on inventions of black people, which again were uplifting, but also showed evidence of suppression. And so just conceptually, I just think this is just crazy that we haven't, that my design history book, Philip Meggs, which I think is a great book, but they don't have anything about this. I mean, they have William Playfair who invented the charts and they have Edward Tufte, who's really well-known for talking about infographics, but Tufte never talks about W.E.B. Du Bois' data portraits. And these are basically, have been erased from history for several decades. And for the first time, people are giving them the recognition and giving them the credit of being one of the first infographics to take on these social issues and to show that social science could be a field of science and math and data rather than these ungrounded, almost like mythical ideas that people were just taking for granted for centuries. It was the first time that there was infographic activism is what it's been called.
0: Mm. Um, What an interesting tie into what is going on right now for the same mission of using infographics in the current atmosphere to Mm -hmm. make such a strong point that isn't being made otherwise.
1: Yeah, and showing these stark realities that I think a lot of people may be uncomfortable with, but are real. And like by seeing this data will cause people to take action and will cause people to fight for social justice. I am just... I was blown away learning about all this this week. And I think it really just ties into what is happening now and like the importance of sharing information and the importance of showing statistics about institutionalized racism. This is not new, it's been happening. And hopefully, with more visibility around sheer numbers and sheer facts, things will actually change. And these data portraits did win a gold prize at the Paris World Fair, and they were circulated at multiple other world fairs in the coming years. And they were seen. By educated people, by uneducated people, um, by all races, by Europeans, by Americans, and they were all like applauded at the time, but then for several years afterwards, they disappeared, and they are largely not a part of formal design history education, which... Blows my mind, but now that we're in contemporary times, I think they're they are having a revival. This book, W. E. B. Du Bois' *Data Portraits*, was released in the past couple years. That is a collection of this with like some really hard work and studying from the editors. And then there's artists that are continuing to keep W. E. B. Du Bois's work alive, and that includes The theaster Gates, who's a Chicago artist that I have so much respect for and is creating such important art, usually around racial injustice but also creating more space and a larger platform for the Black community, he recreated a lot of the W.E.B. Du Bois data portraits with new materials because originally they were handcrafted with round gouache and graphite and fairly common materials. And he's painting them, putting them in neon and elevating them and bringing them to the public in a way that they were never seen before. And then there's Trey Seals, who was a student of Ewan Thomas's for the type design class. but also an incredibly talented type designer in his own right um, has created a type base that is based off of the very modern type that exists in these data portraits. So I think it's really important to see that this was like the first example of data visualization in service to social justice and seeing how this is continuing throughout the time. And it goes with, and I can't even, talk about the history of this without talking about how modern these infographics looked. And again, it was in the world of Art Nouveau, which we automatically think is like this old world. And these data visualizations were using sans serif type, which was not common at all in 1900. It was using bright colors in ways that we could easily see translations into how this could have potentially influenced the Bauhaus movement, the avant-garde modern movements of the 20th century. movements to steal, like movements that are, are largely credited to Europeans that existed 20 years after these visualizations were created. So there's no hard proof that these influenced those movements, but people did see these data visualizations in Europe where these movements were founded. They did see them. So you can't say there's direct link, but it certainly is a predecessor to all of these movements and they still look modern and contemporary when we view them today.
0: That's so interesting.
1: I was so passionate about researching. Once I started, I just fell in this huge rabbit hole of how important these were and how much now more than ever we should be talking about these and discussing them. And it easily shows the power of design and the power of these visuals to impact the world. And I think that that purpose and mission of those back then is still living on strongly today.
0: I had never heard of W.E.B. Du Bois before So this. did you
1: hear did you know of Edward Tufty?
0: Yes show? yes exactly yes yeah.
1: mm-hmm. it's
0: just shocking to me that both didn't come up in my like I went to art school I took art history classes how, how is this only coming up now 15 mm-hmm. years after I graduate it's absolutely and mm-hmm. and to look at it even doing some general googling there's a Public Domain Review is a good website that I found where Mm -hmm. you get these high quality images to look at it. It's hard to describe in a podcast, but visually, you look at it, and the way that the information is laid out is shocking in its own right, let alone the information that it is, obviously. But the creativity of the design of it, and to hear that it's by someone and a group of people who aren't considered by themselves to be designers the Mm -hmm. creative way to demonstrate the information is in itself fascinating and i'm shocked that that is not even talked about
1: like I didn't even get into that because there's only so much time we have on this segment. And I highly encourage you all to look them up because I do believe a lot of them are public domain. But but yeah, it's hard to just like describe it here. And I think it's a much more visceral experience. They're incredibly powerful. And they're very straightforward and stark. And they they just are such good communicators from a group of people that were interested in social science rather than graphic design, so to speak.
0: What a fascinating topic. How did, I just have to ask, how did this pop into your brain as a thing to start researching before you knew all this background about it?
1: Well, it's hard to say exactly where it came from. I know once I realized I want to do it, I was really ready to do it. But I, I did see an Instagram post and I'm sorry, I don't know who to credit it to. But I think it was talking about how we have learned graphic design history in a very singular lens of a lot of like white men in history and how they have influenced how graphic design existed today. And I think someone was making this motion graphic where it was like crossing out all of these names of these popular like Saul Bass and really familiar graphic design, history people and replacing it with names and I did see W E B Du Bois in there and so that that was in the back of my mind and then I think I remembered that in art history class I think even my freshman year I don't even think it was design history I think it was art history we touched on them really briefly and I was like oh I didn't even know what these looked like but that has to be relevant and once I started reading I there was just no turning back I had to talk about it
0: Yeah, you mentioned Trey Seals, who was kind of a a friend of ours from knowing him from the class. His work has been talked about a bunch lately, which is good because his work is so flippin' good. He has VocalType.co, if you want to check that out listening. And in his work in progress section on the typefaces, he has one called William because, what is it, William Edward Burghardt Du Bois is what Mm it stands for. Mm -hmm. I'm just so fascinated by all of this. I can't believe that I didn't know about any of this. Uh, But even even the typeface, the text that they set it in is Mm -hmm. fascinating to me. How have all of these fascinating elements completely slipped by the radar of white history? Like, that's absolutely absolutely. shocking. Absolutely shocking.
1: it's, it's so shocking. There's so much content online about these now, which I'm so happy about. I think a lot of it was triggered from the book that was released a couple years ago. Again, mm-hmm. I bought that, it, I mean, this is not a plug, but it was four bucks. It's not expensive. <laughs> and I was able to like learn a bunch about the history and see the portraits. So I'm glad that I was able to use Nerd Alert this week to talk about something that is so incredibly important and I hope will change people's perspective on design history
0: what forward. a good topic you Things and these nerd up. alerts my friend
1: oh yeah i mean i think that i i have an idea for next week that we talked about but i don't want to spoil anything yeah
0: <laughs> we should probably just stop talking about links and just do entirely nerd alert oh
1: uh, links are fun too <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right so thank you olivia for that wildly eye-opening section and for always having great topics to share about with our sweet links we will be back next week with a whole bunch of other links shout out to everybody who has listened this far we love you you're great oh
1: yeah rate review if you can
0: (laughs) yeah the the ratings have been helpful that people have been thrown in and the reviews are helpful just to uh get in front of more people it's more fun yeah
1: especially this episode i feel like there's really important information here so definitely share with anyone that needs that eye-opening segment
0: All right. uh, We'll see everybody next week. We'll have more fun stuff to talk about then. And uh, in the meantime, stay awesome.
1: Adios.